0: Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized, badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. This episode, Judy interviews Chelsea Hill. Chelsea is a professional dancer, content creator, and the founder and CEO of Rolettes, a wheelchair dance team based in L.A. In July, Judy had the pleasure of attending the Rolettes Experience, which was celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the Rolettes. In this episode, Judy and Chelsea talk a lot about their time at the Rolettes Experience, Chelsea's vision for the Rolettes, and her exciting new experience of becoming a mother. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel
1: best, and let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Human Perspective. And today we're going to be speaking with a woman that I have gotten to know over the last number of years. More years, actually, than I realized. I think I first met you, Chelsea, when you were on Push Girls. And that was in what, 2012?
2: Yeah, 2012.
1: Why don't you tell us briefly what Push Girls was?
2: Yeah, so Push Girls was a reality show, a docu-based series about five of us and how we live our lives as women with disabilities. We all had different levels of spinal cord injuries, and um, we just showed how we lived our life as traveling, dating, you know, finding friends, career, and I was the young one that was newly injured and kind of was thrown into this injury and didn't really know what to expect. So it was about the four main girls, and then and then there was me, the the young one. <laughs>
1: so the reason I wanted to invite Chelsea to do one of our programs is because she is as you will see and maybe already know a really dynamic outgoing person and uh when I first saw her on push girls uh she came in to the program I think towards the end of the first year yeah I loved push girls and if you can get it you should watch it because it's a great program but what I loved about Chelsea was uh, she was a relatively newly disabled woman, and I uh, hear she was a high school student. And the way I describe the program, partially, it's like a reality show. So you got to learn about people's lives. And so one of the things that was going on when learning about you was your family and school and talks that you were giving. And I thought, you know, the program overall was really good. And then when they brought you in as a younger person and nobody on the program was old. I mean, they were in their 20s and 30s. But nonetheless, there was a good number of a years difference between the oldest person and you. And to me, it also had a greater relevance to a broader audience.
2: Yeah. And also, too, I think what was cool about it is there was as in like, numbers of years, we were all injured, you know, like one person was injured for literally the amount of years I was alive. And so it was so cool to have that like different variations of the mindset. Like I was very like, I need to walk again, I need to and they, and like two of them, I remember Octi and um Angela were like sitting back just going, oh, she's still in that. Like she's, you know, like watching me process. Like I really, I processed out loud on the show. And I think that was really cool just to be able to go back and have people who are also processing during that time, be able to relate because, you know, you don't just get injured or diagnosed or become disabled and you're perfectly okay. It's like you go through these different processes. And I was doing that on national television, which was kind of, I don't know, it's kind of crazy to think about now. <laughs>
1: But as a viewer um, and one who had my disability longer than anybody on the program, it was still, for me, a great example of what I would have loved to have had when I was younger. So, I mean, the program itself really was, I think, great in general. It was good for non-disabled people to see another reality show, if you like those, focusing on disabled women, doing so many different things. But also, I think learning about how people were processing um, as they were moving forward, and issues like the importance of moving on with your life and not spending your life looking at walking again. So, like moving from there, you then went on to create this organization called The Rollettes. So before you started doing that, when did you get involved in dancing? Did you do dancing before you had your disability?
2: Yeah, so I actually um, started dancing at a young age. I started dancing when I was three. And then I started competing nationally and regionally when I was five years old.
1: What kind of dance?
2: I did hip hop, jazz, contemporary, I was more so a hip hop girl, I like dabbled in ballet, but I was more so a hip hop girl, jazz, contemporary, lyrical. But I started at a really young age. And to be honest, that was like the one thing that I felt like I was really good at. I wasn't really into school, I'll be honest, like school was really hard for me. But dance was something I could go and do a competition and I could win and I felt like I made my family proud. So I grew up knowing my entire life that I wanted to be a dancer and I wanted to move to Los Angeles and go on tour and be in music videos. Like I had a very clear dream of what I wanted to do. And so, you know, becoming paralyzed.
1: How old were you?
2: I was 17. It was a a month before my 18th birthday. Mm -hmm. So very young, very uh just naive to the world, you know, and very like fresh and ready to like go to college. So I started, you know, I was in Push Girls for the first season. And then second season is when I had this idea of getting other girls in Northern California together to just like dance and hang out. It was never a goal to like have a dance team. And then have this big camp that was never like the initial goal. And I remember I reached out to six other girls that were, you know, all spinal cord injury. That's all that's the only diagnosis I knew at the time. And um, they all flew into Monterey and stayed on my couch stayed on the floor. Like, you know, we we went to Target and like raced down the aisles. And it just became this like, get together reunion and it wasn't called rollettes it was literally like walk and roll boot camp or like you know we had a non-profit at the time so it started out very just casual
1: uh were any of the other uh women dancers before they had acquired their disabilities
2: so No, none of them were. Um, Mia, who was um, on the show too, she danced um, with Color is Emotion. And then Allie, she did like theater and stuff. So those are the only two that really kind of had like a background in dance, not like prior to their injury, but prior to like hanging out with us. So yeah, Allie was like one of the first girls that I reached out to. And then yeah, so six of us, well, seven total.
1: You mean Allie Stroker?
2: Yes, Allie Stroker.
1: How did you meet Allie?
2: So I met Allie at an adaptive surf event, maybe a year after I was paralyzed. And uh, she always tells the story that she says, you know, you had a backwards hat on and I was just so intrigued. I wanted to meet you. And so she rolled up to me and we started talking. We literally hit it off. And she says that I was her first friend in a wheelchair and she's been, you know, in a wheelchair basically her whole life. And so we hit it off instantly and we've been best friends ever since.
1: That's a great story. I actually didn't know that part of the story. (laughs) So, um. Your vision was go to college, be a dancer. Once you acquired your disability, what were some of your beginning thoughts about your future?
2: There was a lot of unknown. You know, I went through a lot of different a lot of different feelings. Um, my whole world was slipped upside down because I didn't know anybody with a disability, especially anybody that lived a life in a wheelchair. I was completely unaware. And so a lot of things that went through my mind, well, the first thing I asked the doctor was, will I be able to dance? That was the first thing I said when I got, you know, tubes out of my mouth and I could speak. And he just looked at me and he said, I'm so sorry. No. And the second thing I asked him was, well, can I still have kids? I was in pediatric ICU at the time. And he goes, well, you can talk to your family about that. So those are the two first questions I I asked. I had no idea. I couldn't feel half my body. And I I just was, my, my goal after the hospital is I wanted to convince everyone else that I was still me. I looked different, but I was still me inside. And that was my main goal, really, with like, you know, getting these girls together. I wanted to show my community that I'm not the only person that has, you know, been disabled at this age, you know? So for me, that was my biggest goal, just convincing everyone else that, like, I'm still me.
1: So we could talk a little bit more about I'm still me. What kinds of changes were going on with other people towards you that you felt you had to say, hey, this is still me?
2: It started out a lot with my friends. You know, I was the type of person in high school that I was friends with everyone. I knew a lot. I knew everyone from different schools. I was a very social butterfly. And I started realizing that people wouldn't invite me to things. And I think it was more so hurtful, because I still wanted to be who I was, but I had to convince them that I was still me. And so I saw a lot of people that would just not call me as much. They just, you know, people that I would hang out with, I never I started not hear from them. And, uh, you know, I had family members just kind of go, Oh, I don't know if you can do this. And my dad was one of the only people really that was like, well, we don't know, but let's try. And so I had this kind of mixed emotions and mixed feedback from people of a lot of people kind of shied away from me because of the unknown, because they didn't know, you know, maybe they thought I was like more fragile. And then I had like my dad that was just the one that was like, I don't know, but let's go. Let's push. Let's go forward. You know, you want to get into this car. Let's let's try it. You want to drive. Here's the keys. Get your chair in the car. So I had this kind of mixed feedback, you know? Mm
1: hmm. And um, did Push Girls, like to me, there's very much connection. You're newly disabled, you're an outgoing person, but now there are these changes going on. Push Girls is such like an outward movie. How did they learn about you? How did you audition?
2: So I, I didn't audition. So it's kind of crazy. I, the year I was paralyzed, I went to a fundraiser in LA and that's when I saw Ati for the first time. And I saw her videos when I was still in the hospital, my dad came in and was like, look at this girl in a wheelchair dancing. And I was like, huh, Interesting. Uh, long story short, saw her completely fangirled and like started freaking out because I was like, oh my gosh, I saw her videos. Then she ind- introduced me to all of the other girls. And later that year, she invited me, the, all the girls invited me down to meet with these producers. And I was like, Okay, sure. So my dad and I drove down had pizza here in LA, I was still living in Monterey. And long story short, I met with these two women who were the producers of this show that they were still pitching. And after a full, you know, meal and chatting over dinner, I remember the producer of the um, production company just said, Hey, like you're a missing link. And I was like, to what? And she says, You have no idea why you're here. And I said, No, I just thought we were like doing a meeting. I don't know. And I had no idea what it was about. And so they told me they were pitching a show. Long story short, they like really took me under their wing, honestly. And I think it was the biggest blessing I could have had as someone who was a young woman with a disability, just learning how to live a life again.
1: So how do you link that part of your life to the roulettes? (sighs)
2: Such a good question. I mean, I feel genuinely like just in general, when you have a life altering incident. When you find other people that are like you, it changes the game because this injury, this diagnosis, disability in general can be so isolating when you first get into this like new world. I feel like I really got so much confidence so early on to my injury because of the girls. And I owe so much of that confidence and reminding myself who I am at my core to the girls. You know, we talked about dating. We talked about family. We talked about how do I wear my heels? How do I how do I feel like a girl again? Like, you know, not only talking about it, but I got to see it. So for me, that feeling of being around other girls like me, I brought into this idea of like this dance team, you know, like I craved it. I didn't feel different when I was around other people with disabilities. I felt, I felt normal. I, whatever that is, you know, I felt like, felt like I belonged. I didn't feel different.
1: Right. Yeah. And I very much understand that. It's like, so I'll use an example. I had the privilege of coming out uh, for your 10th anniversary. And, you know, in the beginning, I wasn't really sure. I'd done a program with you in 2020 virtually, but I didn't know anybody. Usually I go places and I know a lot of people. And really, I knew virtually nobody. I knew you, but we'd never met. It was the first time that I'd met you. I knew Allie and Allie loved you. So all those things were great. And Allie was coming, but then she couldn't come because she's also having a baby. Yep. And so here I was and a little kind of uncertain, but Then when I got there, I was so happy because I hadn't been in a room with so many other disabled people in so long because of COVID. And it's like just being and not having to worry about um, how people were looking at you. And I mean, we were all looking at each other because people had these wild outfits on and dancing. But. It wasn't looking at us because we were the odd person out using a wheelchair. And for me, it was like amazing. So did you ever envision the Rolettes becoming what it is today?
2: So in 2012, after I got the first group of seven of us together, I remember saying to them, like, I had this idea, like, how cool would it be to have a ballroom full of girls dancing? And why I said that is I grew up in the competitive dance industry, where you go to conventions and competitions, and there's ballrooms full of just people dancing and competing and taking classes. And there was nothing like that for us. So I didn't really know where to go, you know, I, I there was that was my normal and then I my normal was flipped upside down. So I had that vision after that first camp, I was like, that'd be so cool to have a ballroom full of girls dancing. And so that's kind of when it was sparked. But each year after that, it just became a reunion. And we'd invite maybe like one more girl or two more girls or three more girls. And it just kind of got bigger after that just by like small increments. And I feel like the small increments helped grow it because we learned so much. Like I remember doing car washes on the side of the road, like free car wash, donate what you can so we could get like lunch that day, you know, like it's grown so much. And I think every year that it's grown, I've gotten a little bit more confident in where I can see it going and we have so much so many more things we want to
1: do so talk a little bit more about some of the things you want to do
2: I feel like honestly the sky's the limit I feel like this is such an untapped niche no one's ever done anything like this and it's crazy to say that like having a bunch of women together dancing and you know panels and stuff like that I just I want Rolette's experience one day to be the number one place for women with disabilities to come to. I would love to have a convention center and there's like five different stages and we have fashion shows, we have makeup seminars, we have dance classes and maybe like a Zumba or something and adaptive sports and it just be the place for people. And maybe one day it's not just women. I don't know. I I don't know. I have like big hopes and dreams for it. And I think every year we just learn what works and what doesn't. And I think that's the best way to grow is just to keep learning.
1: One of the reasons why I really loved being there was the fact that there were so many women and um, the discussions were just so broad. So, you know, people came to dance and you had an advocacy workshop and various other things, but then there were all these minutes where people were mingling and all these different kinds of discussions which were going on. And you could see, I mean, I spoke to so many people and wanted to know like, why had you come? And. What have you done with this before? And most of the people who were there of working age were working. There were a handful of people who weren't, but that was also very interesting. How many people did you ultimately have there?
2: So I think our overall headcount, like attendees, was 230, 235. We had 250 and then we had people drop out just because of like COVID and like, you know, school and work and family stuff. So yeah, we had about 235 and then plus all of the, you know, people they brought to.
1: Right. And so for me, it was interesting just to see how like I could be talking to one person and then another person would come over and then another and then another. And there would be like 10 of us and we were talking about, you know, everything, someone who'd Been studying something, then acquired a disability, was having difficulty getting back into their profession. So there's a lot of peer support, role modeling going on. What I loved about it, it was you didn't have to go to a room to have a particular discussion. Yeah. Everybody was there in part for dancing. But I think, you know, a lot of people, oh, I've been here for a number of years. And I love coming back. I see old friends. I meet new people. And, you know, similar to like Crip Camp, what you see is as people are getting older, as you were saying, people are becoming, I was going to use the word mature, but just older with more experiences and wanting to ask other people who possibly had more or different experiences. And so that to me was what was very exciting. But I also want to talk a couple of minutes about the young people. So I think the youngest person you had, there was like four. Yes. She was amazing. Yes. So could you explain to us how younger people started getting involved? Was it consciously done or what?
2: Yeah. So we started this in 2012. In 2017, it was my first year where we're like, let's have kids. And I had no idea. Honestly, I had no idea what to expect. I mean, with kids comes parents, which comes like more people. And I I was like, I don't really know what I'm getting myself into. So we invited kids that we had already met before so we were familiar with them. That was when we were still in like had it at dance studios. I was renting cars to go pick them up at the airport to take them to an Airbnb that we rented to then pick them up and take them to the dance studio. It was a lot. 2017, we had 30 girls. And the reason why we wanted to bring on kids is because we realized after a few abilities expos that kids would come up to us and their parents would say, Hey, like, we'd love to like have our daughter come out and you know, do your camp. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. And it happened a few times. And I remember chatting with Bria, who's our COO of Rolettes. And I was like, what do you think about inviting kids? And she was like, that's a whole nother ballgame. Like now you have to do kids classes. So anyways, long story short, we ended up inviting kids in 2017. And we had about four of them and their parents and it was so cool to teach a dance class to kids and get to connect with them. That's when we realized like, wow, these little ones get to actually see real life role models in person and that's when we were like wow and then in 2018 uh, we opened it up to the public because my manager was like open up to the public see what happens and I was like okay and 115 girls flew out that year from 12 countries and that was when we were like oh this is real like this could be something big so but I do want to say you know two things a lot of people think Rolex experience is just about dancing and I love that you pointed out the fact that it's not because it yes dancing is an activity but there's so much more and I have people that email us and they're like well I'm in my you know 50s or I'm in my 60s and I want to come and I'm like please come because for me I have so much to learn from people who who are older and wiser than I am and if I do then other people do as well I don't want roulette experience to be for people in their 20s I want it to be for all ages because so many people can learn from the young kids or from people who are older so that's what I want and that's what I see for the future is it being for all ages because we want the activities to be for all ages
1: and one of the things that I think about dance is that it's more than dance Um, I think, you know, thinking about what you were discussing earlier when the doctor said, no dancing, it's out. Just getting people who, whether or not they had a disability, might be a great or terrible dancer, but it's just the body movement. And for me, what I really loved about it was really the need to do so many things. Like your brain really has to be coordinated, all the movements the rapidness of which the teaching was going on. But just to explain, so the first day there was a dance class for kids, the youngest, as you mentioned, being four. And that was way beyond the dancing. And the, the instructor was amazing. She was so energetic. She was so vibrant. And this mother and her little girl came in. And the little girl wanted her mother to come with her into the cohort, little group that she was going to be a part of. And the mother said no. And so the girl did not go into the group. She sat on the side. That was Friday morning. Saturday night at the closing event, this little girl was pushing herself all over the place. She was like the queen of the ball. And that transformation of being able to enter into a room with other disabled people who were, obviously, she was the youngest there, but there were a number of other kids that were six or seven. And it was also great, Chelsea, to look at the young teenagers and how they were working with these younger kids. It was beautiful. And it was like group activities and the way the instructor had set it up. they were little cohorts of three or four. And, you know, some of the teenagers were actually helping the kids learn how to turn their wheelchairs around. But that weekend, as you can tell everybody, I was just so blown away by it. I never go any place anymore and spend like three days. But I was kind of all over this for three days. So as you look at this moving forward and wanting it to be even more intergenerational. What's your vision of how to make that happen?
2: It's a really good question. Like I said, I feel like every year I learn, but I think being able to bring in more outside people to help make that happen is, I think, the first step. I want it to be the place where if you are into one thing, then you can find it at Roulette's Experience. This coming year, 2023, we're already starting to talk about it. And I want to bring in outside people just to get another perspective because I'm so focused on, you know, what I enjoy that I think having other people's opinions help broaden it, I think will really help. So it is something that the team and I are really talking about of like, who can we bring in? What can we change? And uh, we always send out every year after we always send out like a, a type form where people can give us like their anonymous feedback on like what they would like to see what they would do differently, what they didn't like, because we take that and I love it because it always helps make it better.
1: This episode of The Human Perspective is sponsored by Fable. Fable is an accessibility platform powered by people with disabilities. Fable understands that disabled people are often underemployed due to systemic barriers. To help bridge this gap in opportunities, Fable has created Fable Pathways, a free skill development program created by disabled people for disabled people. Pathways course instructors are experts in their fields and have lived experience with disability. Get started in web development with screen reader user Kelly Ford from Microsoft or advance your career with becoming a manager taught by Fable's Kate Kelcevich. And look forward to more content coming later this year, including a course delivered by me, Judy Human. Pathways courses empower disabled people to participate in the technology workforce. They offer free, on-demand, and assistive technology-friendly content. Use the link in this episode's description to sign up and take your career to the next level. What do you see as some of the major challenges that disabled people people are facing today? And maybe we could focus specifically on disabled young women and women.
2: I think, you know, through our mentorship program, Foundless Babe Society, one thing that I've heard a lot of is a lot of people my age are looking to get jobs. And I think that's where there's like this big halt is when people with disabilities want to go get a job, it's harder for them. To me being in in it, I'm like, why? Like, you know, I, I don't understand. But I think a lot of people are are struggling with trying to figure out what they want to do. So I think that's like a big, a big issue. But I also feel like something that has been coming up more and more is something we talked about at Rolex Experience, and that's flying and airlines and our wheelchairs getting damaged and how to educate people around just taking care of our legs, you know, this is the way that we we get around. This is our, our device that can't be broken. So those are two things I think have really stood out to me the last year is having people with disabilities find jobs and find careers through that. and then also having to educate airlines about how to handle our chairs.
1: I mean, I want to say on that point about employment, what I think is so important is when I looked at the people who were at the Rolette's 10th anniversary, you have this younger group of people that we were discussing. Their experiences are gonna be different than your experiences because you basically went through regular education with expectations as a non-disabled woman. Um, The younger people today, it's hopefully better for most of them in being in more inclusive education settings. But another point that you raised earlier was when you acquired a disability, you didn't see yourself. Yeah. And I think that's still very true. So these younger girls are still not really seeing themselves in careers. And I think, you know, you've really hit on a very important aspect of potentially one thing that the Rolex could be more consciously thinking about, which is how to help instill in younger disabled uh, young girls and boys um, and their parents. Because I think what was very interesting when I talked to a number of the parents is Some of them had been there before, some of them, it was their first time, but the parents were there as much to expose their kids as it was to expose themselves. So I think that's a very vibrant part of the program. So you have really evolved since you acquired your disability. How long ago was that now? 13 years ago?
2: Yeah, almost 13. So 12 years. Yeah, it's crazy.
1: And so you are also someone that more and more people are learning about because of the good work that you're doing. And I think your ability to really express yourself in such a powerful way. And I think, you know, your voice makes a difference in so many people's lives. So learning about your being pregnant through People Magazine, we were like laughing. So where did you meet your husband?
2: So I actually met Jay at an Abilities Expo.
1: Can you tell us what an Abilities Expo is?
2: Yeah, so an Abilities Expo is a convention for people with all types of disabilities that you can go to and find literally every sort of resource you want, from sports to nonprofits to funding to um, wheelchairs to cushions to literally everything. It's like the mega place to go, and they have them all over the United States. So I was working for a company in the industry, and Jay worked for a company, and at the time, we caught eyes from across the room at the uh, Abilities Expo in LA, and we didn't talk. I remember seeing him; he remembers seeing me, but we never said anything. And about six months later, um, we were at the same same event, so Abilities Expo, but in Northern California. And he came over to my booth that I was working, and he said, "Hey, like, I'd love to hear about the product." And I did my spiel, like recognizing who he was, and I was like, "He's really cute, so cute." <laughs> So, you know, he always says, oh, yeah, I already knew about the product. He actually sold the product for us. He was one of our vendors and I had no idea. (laughs) So uh, we hit it off that weekend and he asked me, you know, to grab a drink later that night and like asked me to breakfast the next morning and we hit it off. And we've been together for seven years now. We got married about eight months ago, which was amazing. And uh, now we're expecting.
1: (laughs) When is the baby due?
2: The baby's due in January. So we have a date of January 8th, but it's our first. So who knows? We don't know what can happen. I'm learning so much. I've been messaging girls from like all over that have had babies that do have, you know, spinal cord injury. I'm like, what should I expect? How are things going to go later? So I'm about 18 weeks now.
1: So, what are some of your concerns and what are some of the things you've been learning and what are some of the things they may be teaching?
2: So I've learned that, you know, you got to pee a lot, (laughs) real, like I'll just be very open. Like you got to pee a lot. You got to time yourself. I just recently learned that like towards the end, it does get a little bit difficult. The last few months you have to pee like every two hours and the last two weeks is like really hard. Um, so I'm a little nervous about that, but luckily it's during Christmas and everything kind of dies down. You know, blood thinners are something that, you know, a lot of us have to be on during the full pregnancy. You can be on a baby aspirin or you can be on like a shot. Uh, let's see, what else have I learned? You definitely, the first trimester for me was really rough. I was very nauseous during planning rollout experience, and I was very sleepy. So I rested a lot and I was very nauseous the whole time. So making sure that I eat consistently throughout the day is something that helps keep the nausea at bay. And second trimester is great. I feel like I got a burst of energy. But yeah, I'm just learning as I go. And I don't think there's enough talk about mothers with disabilities and what they go through. So I'm really, I want to be as open as possible about what I'm going through and really just help educate as many people. So a lot of people are asking me questions. And I just hope to be like another source of resource when it comes to that. I do have rods in my back. So I'm not sure if I can get an epidural now. Um, So that's something that we're going to figure out in the next few months is will the anesthesiologist want to touch my back? Or, you know, do I do all natural? Or do I do a C-section? Because you can do both. So there's a lot of A lot of things that my husband and I are talking about and trying to get a birth plan, but also having a disability, it's kind of hard to have a birth plan because you just don't know.
1: There's an organization in Northern California. I don't know if you've heard of it called Through the Looking Glass.
2: Oh, I think I've heard of them.
1: Yeah. And so Through the Looking Glass was started in like the 1970s. It actually started at the Berkeley CIL and now it's a separate group, but they work with parents who have disabilities a woman uh, who works with them, maybe have been retired, but she's still involved. Her name is Judy Rogers and uh, Judy has cerebral palsy and she's an occupational therapist and she's a mother of now two grown kids, probably has grandchildren. But, you know, she's got a lot of experience and they have a lot of connections. You know, your point is, really important. So non-disabled people having children, I mean, obviously it's the first experience. It's new for everybody, but I think you also are dealing with doctors who haven't necessarily worked with, you know, women who have a spinal cord injury and there are definitely other people out there who can help you and others. I think it's great that you're on this journey.
2: Thank you. You know, I also what I've learned is so many people, my family was like, Oh, so you get a spinal cord injury doctor. And I'm like, there's no such thing when it comes to delivering a baby having a doctor that specializes in just one diagnosis. So you actually get a high risk doctor that has this like, huge spectrum of what they what they see. So, you know, someone with a heart, a heart condition, they'll also see them and somebody with spinal cord injury, cerebral palsy. So it's all kind of grouped into one. So, you know, really communicating with our doctors is something that I'm really starting to learn a lot about because my doctor already was like, oh, well, we'll use, you know, tools to, you know, deliver the baby. And I'm like, I would love to... the option to not do that you know so really advocating for yourself is something that i'm learning to do and it's hard for me to do sometimes even though like i think people don't know that about me it's it is hard for me to advocate for myself i can advocate for others but uh, my husband and i are really just like sticking to what we feel we want to do and then you know going from there but it's it's really interesting
1: It is. And I'm sure that one outcome of this program today will be other people reaching out to us to let you have more information. Please. And I'm sure, are you talking to Allie? I'm sure she'll. Yep. Oh my God. It's so amazing. And she's going to have her baby before you. So her baby is what? November and you're January.
2: Yeah. She's sometime in November. I'm in January. So I'm going to have all the questions. We text all the time. I'm like, how are you feeling? She checks in with me. How are you feeling? And it's crazy. Cause she, when I was feeling sick, she was feeling better. And she's like, it switches in second trimester. And then now I'm here and now she's telling me all the things to expect in the next two months. And I'm like, oh gosh.
1: Yeah. And then on the other hand, you don't want to like, you want to know that these are things that could happen, but you don't want to say, oh, it's definitely going to happen. Yeah. So you would say that overall now the pregnancy is going well.
2: Yeah, it's a lot easier um in the second trimester than it was in the first. I was I was down. That was rough.
1: So what are you looking at for the future as far as being a parent is concerned?
2: I'll be honest, I'm terrified. I'll be straight up honest with you guys, like I'm terrified. But, you know, I I love the life that I've worked so hard to build for myself and everyone says oh, your life changes, everything changes. And for me, the selfish part of me is like, I don't want it to change. But then the other side of me is really excited to take this next step and be a mother. For me, I just keep telling myself things are gonna shift. And it's going to shift in the most beautiful way. And so I think taking it each day, step at a time is what's keeping me like sane because you can look at like, oh, baby shower, gender reveal, the nursery, all the equipment, like you can look at it as a whole. And then I get really overwhelmed. And then also running a business and doing what I do and my work through social media, it can be very overwhelming. And I get a lot of anxiety about it. But what I'm really looking forward to is learning. Like I can't wait to be a mom. I can't wait to see Jay hold the baby like that. I'm I cannot wait like for Jay to be a dad. And we've been talking about this since we first met. So there's a lot I'm excited for. And I just want to keep myself very clear on what I'm excited for versus what I'm nervous for. And I think the nerves will come naturally. And I think every day I just learn how to advocate for myself, which is going to help me advocate for our baby later.
1: And I think, you know, you definitely are an advocate, including for yourself. I mean, I have the same feeling that I can advocate for others and I don't necessarily advocate for myself all the time the way I would like to. But I think that's because there are so many things that we see that we want to be different and you can't dwell on each issue the same amount of time you kind of have to pick, you know, what you're going to go after. Yeah. We like to end the program by asking people to tell us something about yourself that we may not have talked about that you think would be fun for other people to know.
2: Okay, so okay. So fun fact is something that like I I don't think a lot of people know is if I wasn't a dancer and I wasn't doing what I'm doing today, I have this huge passion for interior design. Um. I love interior design, I could look at magazines all day, it's like my guilty pleasure, like I could go into any store and just get like absorbed into it by just designing different things, I'd probably I'd probably design homes for a living if I if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now. So that's kind of like a fun fact, I think about me that like, is my own personal like hidden hobby that I love to do. I love I will always be redesigning our home always. And I, my husband's like, why are you moving things around? I'm like, I don't know. I just want to, like, I just get bored. So that's kind of like a hidden thing that I don't think a lot of people know is I love interior design.
1: I love that. And it really links, I think, so well into performance art. Yeah. It's really very much a part of it. I want to thank you so much for sharing your time Um, and for everything that you do and you will continue to do. And uh, we'll stay in touch about the baby. Yes. Oh, and you have two beautiful little dogs.
2: Yes, we do. Bailey and Stella.
1: (laughs) So Jay, the husband the two dogs and the baby The
2: baby. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Judy, you know, just having you at our virtual event in 2020. And then now in person, it's honestly, it's an honor for you to see what we've created, you know, with everything you've done with Crip Camp and documentary and your book, like from that, and then now you getting to see it in real life. I'm, I'm so thankful that you got to see it in person and got to know more people in the community. And, um, Hopefully, we'll have you back next year and all the years to come. And I think you just brought such an amazing aspect of having to stick up for yourself and like advocating for yourself. And you taught so many people how to do that this year. So I, I appreciate you. And thanks for giving me uh, some time to chat.
1: So thank you so much and say hi to your dad.
2: I will. Thank you. Now it's time for Ask Judy,
0: a segment where Judy answers questions sent in by listeners.
1: I'm very happy to introduce Zaina Ferry, who we've been very fortunate to have this summer as an intern. And uh, they've come from Philadelphia, and they're an undergraduate student at Howard University. Luckily, they've been with us since June. And so as the summer is drawing down, we thought it'd be a great opportunity for Zaina to ask a question.
0: So in this episode of the podcast with Chelsea, you talked about the disability representation that you and Chelsea have given to others. So I wanted to ask you, what was the disability representation that you had growing up?
1: I would say the disability representation that I had growing up when I was really younger was very limited. Um, The first time I really remember meeting other disabled people was when I was four years old and there was a rehab hospital in New York City. Remember, I grew up in Brooklyn. And Rusk Institute, for some reason, and I don't know why, I went to Rusk Institute, I think, for one or two months. My father would bring me Monday morning and pick me up Friday night. But there were, from what I remember, very few kids my age, but there were older people, like newly spinal cord injured people or others. So that was the first time I remember meeting other people. And People would joke about how I would flirt with the guys. And I don't know if they taught me how to wink, but I was known for my winking. And then the next time I really met other disabled people, as we've discussed in different programs, was when I finally started going to school in these Health Conservation 21 classes. So for a long period of time, nothing, until I was like nine. And then between school and the camps I went to, meeting disabled people, but really, I think, at a more fundamental level, becoming friends with many disabled people and really learning about how who I was and what I was desiring was not very unique, that other disabled people were looking for the same things. And that's really where I began to realize that working together, learning to be an advocate, although we didn't, learn, we didn't use a word like that, was something that paid off.
0: The second question I had for you was, what brings you the most joy?
1: and being with family I love being with family and eating good food going to the movies going to restaurants yeah partying learning about what's going on in people's lives I love that ballet theater I love all that haven't done much of it in the last couple years but definitely miss it it's been great having you with us this summer so what what has it been like for you
0: um, It's been really interesting. This is the first internship I've ever done. So I went into it not really knowing what to expect, but it was definitely a great work environment. Um, I'm glad. I feel like it was really accommodating. I'm sure if I were somewhere else, like it would be a very different work environment than this one.
1: I mean, for us, what we've really loved about you being here is how quickly you began to work with us as a team. Mm-hmm. And I think you had great communication to talk about what you were interested in, what you were able to do, and you've been producing really good work. So both working with us on the human perspective, but also the monthly newsletter, like you've played a really important role in that. And, you know, people love it. It's been great. That history
2: won't forget us or
0: Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at judithhuman and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.